If you'll take your Bibles and turn to the book of Jeremiah, if you'll turn to Jeremiah chapter 40. We are finished with Lamentations last week, and we are back into Jeremiah to finish these uh, last 10, 12 chapters, which will go pretty quickly, I think, for us. Uh, we're going to handle two today. Yeah, two chapters. That's pretty, that's like a record for me, I think. Um, but we're going to be uh, not quite all of two chapters. So we're going to be reading chapter 40 through chapter 41, verse 15 uh, this morning. And so another somewhat lengthy, but it is a, a uh, historical account. And so we want to get the whole storyline in uh, for this event. And it is recorded for us much more briefly in Second Kings, but we want to have Jeremiah's uh, perspective on this. So, beginning Jeremiah chapter 40, I'll be reading out of the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's word declares, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah, when he had taken him bound in chains among all who were carried away captive from Jerusalem and Judah, who were carried away captive to Babylon. And the captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, The Lord your God has pronounced this doom on this place. Now the Lord has brought it and has done just as he said. Because you people have sinned against the Lord and not obeyed his voice, therefore this thing has come upon you. And now look, I free you this day from the chains that were on your hand. If it seems good to you to come with me to Babylon, come and I will look after you. But if it seems wrong for you to come with me to Babylon, remain here. See, all the land is before you. Wherever it seems good and convenient for you to go, go there. Now, while Jeremiah had not yet gone back, Nebuzaradad said, Go back to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon has made governor over the city of Judah, and dwell with him among the people. Or go wherever it seems convenient for you to go. So the captain of the guard gave him rations and a gift and let him go. Then Jeremiah went to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, to Mizpah, and dwelt with him among the people who were left in the land. And when all the captains of the armies who were in the fields, they and their men, heard that the king of Babylon had made Gedaliah the son of Ahikam, governor of the, of the land, and had committed to him men, women, children, and the poorest of the land who had not been carried away captive to Babylon, then they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah. Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, Johanan, and Jonathan, the sons of Kariah, Sariah, the son of Tanhumeth, the sons of Ephi, the Nedophathite, and Jezaniah, the son of Amachathite. They and their men. i got to read these again here later in the chapter, so hang with me. And Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, took an oath before them and their men, saying, Do not be afraid to serve the Chaldeans. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. As for me, I will indeed dwell at Mizpah and serve the Chaldeans who come to us. But you, gather wine and summer fruit and oil, put them in your vessels, and dwell in your cities that you have taken. Likewise, when all the Jews who were in Moab, among the Ammonites, and Edom, and who were in all the countries, heard that the king of Babylon had left a remnant of Judah, and that he had set over them Gedaliah the son of Icom, the son of Shaphan, then all the Jews returned out of all places where they had been driven and came to the land of Judah to Gedaliah at Mizpah and gathered wine and summer fruit in abundance. Moreover, Johanan, the son of Kariah, and all the captains of the forces that were in the fields came to Gedaliah at Mizpah and said to him, Do you certainly know that Baalis, the king of the Ammonites, has sent Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, to murder you? But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, did not believe them. Then Johanan, the son of Kariah, spoke secretly to Gedaliah in Mizpah, saying, Let me go, please, and I will kill Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and no one will know it. Why should he murder you, so that all the Jews who are gathered to you would be scattered, and the remnant in Judah perish? But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, said to Johanan, the son of Kariah, You shall not do this thing, for you speak falsely concerning Ishmael. Now it came to pass in the seventh month that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishama, of the royal family and of the officers of the king, came with ten men to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, at Mizpah, and there they ate bread together in Mizpah. 
Then Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and the ten men who were with him, arose and struck Gedaliah with the sword and killed him, whom the king of Babylon made governor over the land. Ishmael also struck down all the Jews who were with him, that is, with Gedaliah at Mizpah, and the Chaldeans who were found there, the men of war. And it happened on the second day after he had killed Gedaliah, when as yet no one knew it, that certain men came from Shechem, from Shiloh, and from Samaria. Eighty men with their beards shaved and their clothes torn, having cut themselves with offerings and incense in their hand to bring them to the house of the Lord. Now Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, went out from Mizpah to meet them, weeping as he went along. And it happened as he met them that he said to them, Come to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam. So it was when they came into the midst of the city that Ishmael the son of Nethaniah killed them and cast them into the midst of a pit, he and the men who were with him. But ten men were found among them who said to Ishmael, Do not kill us, for we have treasures of wheat, barley, oil, and honey in the field. So he desisted and did not kill them among their brethren. Now the pit into which Ishmael had cast all the dead bodies of the men whom he had slain because of Gedaliah was the same one Asa the king had made for fear of Baasha, king of Israel. Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, filled it with the slain. Then Ishmael carried away captive all the rest of the people who were in Mizpah, the king's daughters, and all the people who remained in Mizpah, whom Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had committed to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam. And Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, carried them away captive and departed to go over to the Ammonites. But when Johanan the son of Kariah and all the captains of the forces that were with him heard of all the evil that Ishmael the son of Nethaniah had done, they took all the men and went to fight with Ishmael the son of Nethaniah, and they found him by the great pool that is in Gibeon. So it was when all the people who were with Ishmael saw Johanan the son of Kariah and all the captains of the, all of the forces who were with him that they were glad. Then all the people whom Ishmael had carried away captive from Mizpah turned around and came back and went to Johanan the son of Kariah. But Ishmael the son of Nathaniah escaped from Johanan with eight men and went to the Ammonites. This morning we're going to uh, get into what really becomes a, another sad circumstance for Judah. We kind of feel like, well, Jerusalem has fallen and we can relax a little bit, and um, they've learned their lesson, they've gone into captivity, and certainly at this point, um, everyone is very aware of God's working, and we can see that things have turned out just the way God has said it through his prophets. But it hasn't quite been completely the way God said it, because... He, uh, again, stipulated not only this captivity, but there would also be destruction awaiting those even left behind that survived. And what Jeremiah paints for us here in these next three chapters is really how that happened. And it is another sad fact that while they learned some things, they did not apply what they learned to their lives. So this morning, we're going to talk about three different enemies that we face and three different enemies that Judah still had and how they related to them. Ultimately, though, um, an enemy we're, we're going to kind of overshadow all that is their own foolishness of not fulfilling their uh, obligation to obey God. But we're going to see three different enemies, and we might think, well, the fall of Jerusalem has happened, and now um, it's been well established that God had used Babylon to do that. But that doesn't mean that there is now a freedom from opposition for Judah. And a freedom from just considering their circumstances around them and who they have uh, involved both within and without. And so we want to take some time to look at these. And, and we're going to go into the New Testament a little bit. Um, this morning as well, and to realize that God still holds these out there in front of us and to recognize that there are these same enemies that confront us and that we need to have wisdom in encountering them uh, as uh, both those that we ought to cooperate with and those that we ought to be warned against and those that we 
have to just recognize will always be our enemies. And before we do so, let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for, again, your word and your spirit. And we commit ourselves this uh, time to study it carefully, to consider it, and to bring it into our lives. And Lord, we see a consistency because men have always been sinners since the garden. And in rebellion against you, there is a consistency there in how they will behave. And Lord, we pray that as we recognize the hearts of men, that we might uh, recognize also the gift that you've given us in dealing with that heart, both within us and our own hearts of replacing hearts of stone with hearts of flesh, so we might be responsive to you we might be consistent in righteousness just as the world is so consistent in their sin. And so we pray that you might uh, find us walking your truth that you revealed to us through your word today. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. So we have three enemies. You say, well, what are the three enemies that are here listed? Um, the first enemy is the God-ordained one that God has raised up for a very specific purpose, and that was to... Uh, deal a judgment blow against Judah. And he had said, I will raise this army up. He said where it was going to come from. He uh, raised up that empire just as he promised. They came down the valley just as they should anticipate out of the north. And he accomplished just exactly what God said he would accomplish. And Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians come in. And that is really the first enemy that we encounter here in this passage. And uh, he is personified, the Babylonian Empire at this point, is really personified not by Nebuchadnezzar, um, the king, but rather the commander that he has put in charge of the area, Nebuzaradan. And uh, so Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, who, remember, was responsible to take uh, and hunt down the, the royal family that had escaped at the end of the siege of Jerusalem, he gathered them up, take, took them up the Ribla, that's where they were uh, slaughtered. Well, now he's got those that did not escape, those that did not run off, um, and Jeremiah is among them. And so he is here to set up um, a governance over the region. But he wants to make a declaration and an offer and then set up the government. So he is laying a foundation for a relationship that you can see from his perspective, uh, Israel should, uh, Judah should lay hold of it and should cling to that with an expectation um, of not necessarily trusting in Babylon, but cooperating with Babylon as a means of trusting in God. And it's kind of an odd thing, isn't it, to hear your enemy that's been besieging your city and has destroyed your city and your temple to be the one to come to you with a spiritual message. You didn't listen to the, the prophets among you, and so God brings Nebuzaradan on here, and he says, the reason this happens to you is your sin. And boy, don't you hate it when the world comes in and says, well, you're a sinner. Yeah, we didn't trust God. Yeah, but no, we, we tend to just recoil from that. Um, but here, Nebuzaradan comes and it says, the reason this doom came on this place in verse 2, the, 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 he has pronounced this doom, he's brought it. So first of all, look at what he understands. Look at what Nebuzaradan knows. Number one is that God forewarned you. God pronounced this doom before it came. You had warning from God. So your enemy knows that you know, they know that. They've known that the prophets, what the prophets foretold. They knew you had warning. You knew better. The second thing he says is that, that uh, not only the Lord warned you, the Lord has brought it about just as he said he would. And so 
They know that God warned them, and they know, interestingly, here's the Babylonian captain of the guard saying, God gave us the, your God gave us the victory over you. An incredible indictment against Judah. He doesn't credit the Babylonian deities for it. Do you see that? There's no credit to the Babylonian deities at all. Nebuchadnezzar is like, your God did this to you. Used us against you. And so he doesn't, which is very different than, say, the Assyrians who get up there and blaspheme the God of Israel, remember, and then they're destroyed like that. God says, no, no, no way. You know, I raise you up. I tear you down. He destroyed the Assyrians right there at the gate. Um, well, here's the Babylonians. Whether they heard about what happened to the Assyrians or whether they just are wiser, um, they come up and they said, we're not going to blaspheme your God. Um, that's why this all happened to you. Um, we are giving your God, not our God, your God, the credit for our victory over you. A phenomenal indictment against Judah to have your enemy take up the name of your God and credit him with your destruction instead of their own God. Amazing statement Nebuchadnezzar says here. And then he not only knows that God forewarns you and knows that it is your God that did it, not his God, that gave them the victory, he even knows why. And here's your enemy telling you why your God caused your judgment. And he says, because you have sinned against the Lord and not obeyed his voice, therefore this thing has come upon you. So he has laid this out very carefully, and this is a, a very strong declaration, and what he is saying, essentially is going to be borne out here in a little bit, don't you blame us for your destruction. Don't you have animosity against us as your enemy? We have done the work of your God. He told you we were coming. He, he, is, he gave us the victory over you, and... He already told you why he was going to judge you. It's because of your sin that you wouldn't repent of. So don't have animosity against this enemy. And Gedaliah seems to have heard those words. And he is the one who is going to be set up to govern the region of Judah by the Babylonians, under the Babylonian thumb. Um, he's going to govern there. And he's given some, some liberty to do that, not really as a king, um, but in, in a governance role there, certainly. And so the, the indication here later on is that Gedaliah is going to respond to that. Yeah, I have no animosity against the Babylonians. They didn't want to destroy us. We pretty much forced them to destroy us. And that was proven. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar came down the first time and set it up, left life kind of similar to the way it always was, just under his authority. They rebelled. He comes out a second time and has to do it. Still leaves their worship intact. And they still rebel. And he has to come down a third time. So he's already shown that he didn't really want to do it this harshly. But God wanted him to do it this harshly. And so Nebuchadnezzar's words are very powerful. And he's saying, listen, we didn't want to do this to you. You made us do this to you. And your God wanted this done to you because you rebelled so strongly. And so here is an enemy that, any, any, they were the enemies. These are the destructive force that came up against God's people who, who brought judgment upon them almost against their own will. They didn't want to do this. But God pronounced it ahead of time made it happen because of Israel's sin, not because of the Babylonians' bloodthirst. And there are those enemies that God will use, and we call them enemies of the church, to chastise the church, even against their own will. They have no intentions of doing injury, not to the extent that is necessary, to a Christian or to a church, and yet God uses them to judge to purify, to cleanse his people. And we should have no animosity towards them. It is not their desire to do injury damage to the church. Um, it is simply uh, evident that this was because of 
disobedience within the church. And so to further prove his case, Nebuzaradan says, listen, um, now that I've established that you shouldn't have any animosity, let, let me show you what the heart of Babylon is. Here's, here's the Babylonian heart. Um, Jeremiah, you're the prophet of God. We recognize the God of Israel. He's, we've already credited him with this victory. And we, we understand the prophetic word that came. It was warning. Um, so now um, your people imprisoned you, put you in a pit, uh, starved you, beat you, all these things. I'm setting you free. Go where you want. This is where we are at. This is what we wanted. We just wanted you to, to be subservient to us and do whatever God wanted you to do. And once that is determined, and, and it, it is evident that Jeremiah said, no, I'm not going to go with you to Babylon. God wants me to stay in the land. Then uh, uh, Nebuzaradan says, okay, so here's Gedaliah, and you might as well stick with him. Um, or if you don't want to stick with him, go wherever you want. And then he does something pretty incredible. Um, he takes him, and he says um, at the end of verse 5, the captain of the guard gave him rations and a gift and let him go. Here's my recommendation. First of all, I'd recommend you come to Babylon with us. We will treat you really well. We need your kind of men in Babylon. We've already taken a bunch like you. Um, guys, you know, we know them as Daniel and guys like that. Uh, we'll, we'll, I, I, number one recommendation, come to Babylon. But if God doesn't want you to come to Babylon, we don't want you to come to Babylon. What a great attitude. We want you to do what God wants you to do. My second recommendation is you... Since you're going to stay in the land, hook up with Gedaliah the governor and uh, help him. But if God doesn't want you to do that, you go wherever you want. <laughs> I've got a couple of recommendations to you, but I am not God. I am not taking his place. We want you to serve the Lord how the Lord wants you to serve. Um, but I will provide you food and a gift, which is evidence that he had a livelihood, a, a means of, of taking care of him himself and let him go and so jeremiah takes him up on his second advice goes to Gedaliah, and dwells there at mizpah uh, until he is forced away and again he, he confronts another enemy a different enemy the babylon so the first enemy we encounter um, we should have a pretty high regard for this is god's instrument god said i have raised them up I have brought them here. I am with them. They are my champions. Yes, we look at them, we say, well, they're, they're doing injury to us. Yes, but that injury is really for our benefit and not for our destruction. And I want to talk about an enemy the church has faced now for 2,000 years that God has brought against her that has only benefited her. And that is the enemy we call persecution. When people come in and want to try to destroy the church, and this has happened in many nations, and in fact the origin of this nation is those that were trying to run away and looking for liberty, the, the right to, or the opportunity to worship as they please. Um, and so they are driven from lands um, but wherever we find that kind of opposition, open, frontal opposition, we find a wondrous thing that the church multiplies. That God raises up this persecution. That was happening in the book of Acts. I told you we're going to interlace this with, with the New Testament. In the book of Acts, um, the church had a mandate. That mandate was you go to Jerusalem, uh, Judea, Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth in Acts 1. And so that was their, that was their map, if you will, of outreach. And uh, we find throughout the first portions there of Acts that as long as there was peace, they stayed in Jerusalem and they only reached Judea. And everyone had to come to the temple to meet. There was some meeting house to house, but for instruction time, uh, you came to the temple. They were meeting in Solomon's porch. And we keep finding a medium in the temple. What does that tell you about everyone who had to be a Christian in the church? They had to be Jewish. 
They had to be Judean to be able to meet in the temple. And then God raised up an instrument of his own making, and his name was Saul of Tarsus. And he scattered the church. He came in, and he was arresting people, and there was huge persecution derived from the religious leadership there. Uh, and, and Saul comes in with permission to just go after Christians um, as he willed. And he went beyond just Jerusalem, and he went into Damascus, because as they were scattering, that wasn't good enough. They need to be scattered by everywhere, because that's the mandate. And so we find them scattered. It was so effective uh, in, in doing that that we find Christianity just, just exploding. Why? Because of persecution. They were content to stay at home. They were content to care for me and mine. They were content there to be in the temple. It was great. We had super fellowship. We could go house to house. We had the apostles. These guys walk with Jesus. And they were having miracles and, and uh, we could, familiar surroundings. You know, we love the Temple Mount, kind of like Judah back in the days of Jeremiah and that. We love the Temple Mount. It's pretty. It's, it's so, and it's just us. It's just so Jewish. And God says, that's not what I called you to do. And he raises up persecutor. And just as he raises up the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, he raised up a guy named Saul who carried the flame of persecution against the church and the church scattered and then the Bible says they went everywhere preaching the gospel. Instead of destroying the church, the church multiplied. And we find this to be a consistent fact throughout church history is that when we have full frontal opposition that we are not to consider them um, harshly. Uh, we recognize that is a work that God is using to deal with his church. And it's phenomenal. If you look and read the testimonies of people that are in communist lands, you say, oh, you know, how could there be any Christianity under those. And, and we've been reading book of um, one man's testimony out of China, uh, who is our age, my age, pretty much, about one or two years off from us, but he's our age, so it's in our lifetime, what's been going on in China. And all that he suffered, and, and there is no animosity towards the government. There's no animosity towards the harshness of the persecution it kept the church pure it kept the church real and they multiplied in prisons they multiplied because god hand was upon them and they recognized that one of the weaknesses of the western church is that we don't have open opposition we don't have someone banging on our door saying curse god or die we don't have Babylonians kicking at the door to make it very clear whose side you're on. And it becomes an inherent weakness that's going to introduce the second enemy of the church. And this is going to introduce the second enemy of Israel. And so, yes, the first enemy is persecution. And instead of being fearful of it and praying that it never happens and praying that it goes away from lands, uh, other lands, and, and I, I am frustrated sometimes by the Christian community who says, oh, this pastor was arrested in this land. Well, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, that pastor that was arrested in Iran, um, praise the Lord. You think he's sitting still? Do you think God is, can't use him in the prisons of Iran? I don't know of a better place in Iran to share the gospel than her prisons. Those are enemies of the state he's hanging around, which means that they're enemies of Islam, which means they need to hear the gospel and probably are more receptive to it than any other um, Iranian. But we are so afraid of it that if it crops its head up, we're like, oh, that's horrible. No, 
we cannot hate that. For God has used persecution throughout the history of the church to multiply the church, to purify the church, to cleanse her. And so we recognize God raises that up and we recognize we have responsibility to those who persecute us. What does the Bible say? What do we do to them? Do we hate them? Try to destroy them? No. We love them. We seek to help to, to give them the gospel as well. And so they aren't the arch enemies of the church. They are God's instrument that the church needs to recognize and respond to, much like the Babylonian enemy of Israel, of Judah. Well, as our account goes on, Gedaliah then is established as governor. There's still a few representatives of the Babylonian Empire there to assist him in the establishment of that, of that uh, re- it's not a regency, but of that, of that governance. And Israel starts to hear, yes, there are some people left behind. Um, they, they aren't the upper echelon. The upper echelon is gone. They've either been destroyed at Riblah or they've been carried off to Babylon. So this whole upper section of of is of Judah is either dead or gone. So we are now down to what the Bible calls the poorest of the land. So now we're into this lower echelon, that's the left-behinders. And so these aren't the, the best and brightest and strongest, um, not by a long shot, um, but they're all that's left. And so they're going to pick some of the best among the leftovers. And so we're now down here. We're going to see men of war. We're going to see... Uh, uh, advisors, we're going to see all of these people gathering, but I want you to recognize that as you read these names and you, and you look at what they're doing, remember that you have already removed the overwhelming majority of your, of your best. They're gone or dead. So these, these are the ones that uh, were never much in line for anything. <laughs> right? So they weren't like fifth to the throne or anything like that. You're talking about people that were like so far distant related that you don't even think of them as being in line for the throne. Yeah, here they are. And so they start gathering together these men and they weren't in Jerusalem. They weren't engaging the Babylonians in battle. They were out in the fields. They were out in the regions, the, the, the more remote rural regions of, of Judah. And now they find, well, Gedaliah has been set up and we should come to him, support him. And Gedaliah comes up with a speech. And his speech is, we need to serve the Babylonians because God raised them up. And so we need to serve them. And oh, that we would have that perspective on persecutors. Let's serve them. Let's serve them. Let's pray for them that persecute you. Do good to them. Let's serve them. The gospel, first and foremost. So Gedaliah says, we need to serve this enemy. But among that number of men that bring their forces and whatever men were with them, there is a man named Ishmael. And we're not told a lot about him in Kings, and really Jeremiah opens the door to understanding what was going on here in this circumstance. Ishmael is there seeking his own interests. Not the interests of Judah, seeking his own interests. We find out later on that he has royal blood in him. And whether he has aspirations to become the new king or whatever, but he had set up an alliance with the third enemy of Israel. And so he had set up that alliance, and uh, that's the enemy that just doesn't go away. We're going to talk about him a little bit. But here's this enemy, and this enemy isn't from another nation. This enemy is from right inside the door. Six leaders, rural leaders, gather around Gedaliah with their men, with their forces. And one of them is a betrayer, Ishmael. Two of them are brothers. There's a few others. Um, Six are named here for us. Uh, in chapter 40. And one of them becomes a champion and one of them is a traitor. 
And so all of the leftovers, all of the remnant that didn't get carried off, all of these, I'm, I even hesitate to call them remnant because the remnant of Judah, the ones that truly had God's hand still on them, were carried off to Babylon. Those are the preserved ones that God was going to work through. These ones are the poorest. And they still represent Judah, and they're all going to come out of the places they've been hiding. They've been hiding over in Moab. They've been hiding in Edom. They've been hiding here and there in the land, uh, in the regions around. They're going to come out of those places. And uh, you need to recognize all of this is happening in a very short period of time. From the time of Jerusalem's fall to the time of Gedaliah's murder is only two months. Very short period of time here. And so Gedaliah is set up, and, and Ishmael has his own ideas, and he has some ideas that he's going to become king, and he's going to set up this renewed Judah. He has some royal blood in him. He's going to take all these people that have been gathered out of all the areas, and he's going to carry them off, and he's going to start things right, and he's got rebellion in his heart. And this is the second enemy. And because of this second enemy, we have most of the books of the New Testament written. An enemy not from without, but an enemy from within. What are you referring to, Pastor? Well, if you read through most of the books of the New Testament, why were they written? They were written because of false teachers within the church. Not from God. In fact, I would challenge you to really go through the New Testament and find where you are told to engage persecutors. Nero. Caesar, any of them. You just don't see it. I would challenge you to do that. But boy, you go through the New Testament books, see what you're supposed to do to enemies within. To false teachers, to those that were disruptive. Boy, you read through Galatians, you're like, oh boy, you know, Paul had no patience for them at all. I mean, he makes some pretty strong language. I wish they'd cut themselves off. And it's there in Galatians that he says, be careful. Recognize there are enemies among you and be careful lest you bite and devour one another. The most dangerous enemy to the church is within her own realm, within her own sphere. And that's why we have all these books of the Bible, Galatians. I mean, you go through them all and you will find reference. I think maybe only one or two do not reference false teachers. Um, but the rest do. Even some teeny tiny ones. Teeny tiny books of the Bible, and they still have space to warn you about false teachers and antichrists and, and uh, the Judaizers and all these individuals. Why? Because it's a, it is the greatest danger to the church is from within. Yesterday I, I found, uh, someone sent me a, a page, an article, and um, probably because they knew my position, on it, and um, I had told you several weeks ago about uh, one of my Facebook friends that said Donald Trump's our only hope, and how I, ugh, how can a Christian man say that? Claims to be this great theologian. Well, Franklin Graham was interviewed and came out with this declaration. I am not going to endorse any candidate because America's only hope is God. I'm like, yeah. I'm really liking that guy these days. You know, he's taking a lot of heat, but I, I'm really liking him. Um, but uh, exactly. Now, I'm the kind of guy who doesn't, doesn't just read the article. I read the comments. Even when there's hundreds of them, I start filing through the comments. Three-fourths of the comments condemned him for taking that stand. Christians condemning him for standing for the truth that God is our only hope. You see, they have confused enemies and they've made themselves the enemy of the truth because they think that the enemy is Babylon or they think the enemy we should be concerned about is the Ammonites but it isn't. The enemy is Ishmael right in our midst. And Franklin Graham isn't that. It's all the people that hate him 
Franklin Graham, like Jeremiah, stands up and sells the truth. And our response is, oh, you're, I lost all my respect for you. I can't, and even cursing him. Calling him, calling him blasphemy. How can it be blasphemy to declare that God is your only hope? It's blasphemy not to declare it. Seventy-five percent of the respondents to that post, and some tried to be real sweet about it, but it basically came down to he's wrong. God and Trump are our only hope. Some people want to put the and on there. No. He is right. The enemy is within the camp. The deepest, darkest, most dangerous enemy we face is with, among us. And this is what Scripture has taught clearly. And here Ishmael raises himself up. He is presenting himself as the alternative to Gedaliah. And he has his own aspirations, his own interests at heart. He wants to be king because somehow he's got a little bit of royal blood in him somewhere down the line. And he has set up a deal with another enemy, and he's going to carry the people off to himself. And he is very much like David's son Absalom. And he even takes on some of the tactics of Absalom. And he murders his own to establish himself. He murders his own people to establish himself because they have accepted and understood the place of Babylon in God's plan for his people. And Gedaliah and Jeremiah and all of these others, and Johanan, which we're going to talk about the, the hero in the narrative here, um, all understand this is God's instrument. We're going to not fight against it. We are simply going to cooperate and operate within it. But here comes one of our own and says, no, rebellion is the answer. And yes, in places like China, there were those that said we should rebel, but they were wrong. Your fight isn't with communism. And just like your fight isn't with the republic called America. Ultimately, the biggest challenge facing us is with the Christian community. And that we have gone so far down the road that when someone says God is our only hope, we condemn them for it. How? How did we ever get to this point? Is when we took our eyes off of the scriptures and started to say, well, whatever you believe is fine. Just as long as you accept Jesus. And we have simplified the gospel down to just, well, as long as you love Jesus, we all get along. And there's a difference between saying you love Jesus and really loving Jesus. Right? Didn't you learn that in Sunday school this morning? <laughs> There's a difference. And of course, throughout the New Testament, we have those that came to us saying they were Christians, saying they were something, and boy, Galatians just rips them apart, but so do the other Bible books there warn you. There are sheep, are there wolves in sheep's clothing? They look like a sheep, they smell like a sheep, they might even sound like a sheep, but underneath it they are a wolf. They are only interested in their own appetites. They're not interested in serving you the truth, they're interested in devouring you for themselves. And that's why the Bible says their God is their belly. Not that they literally want to eat you, but that spiritually they want it all for themselves. Ishmael wanted everything for themselves. He didn't want to kill all the Judah people. He wanted to take them and be their king in rebellion against Babylon. That's what he wanted to do. And so he worked this all out. And Gedaliah is much like the church. The church doesn't believe that's the problem. Gedaliah is warned. Johanan, there um, in verse 13, Johanan, the son of Koresh, and all the captains of the forces that were in the fields came to Gedaliah at Mizpah. It wasn't, this guy led the group, but all of the other guys, all the other captains, all the other guys with any military experience come to Gedaliah and say, listen, Ishmael 
and the Ammonite king are in cahoots. And they want to murder you. And Ishmael wants to take over the remaining people of Judah that are here in the land for himself. And he's going to have them serve him as he serves the king of Ammon. And Gedaliah says, nah, I can't be. Just like the church for the last hundred years. No, that's not the problem. You're being divisive. Boy, that hurts. I'm divisive. No, you're standing for the truth. The ones that are divisive are the false teachers, the Ishmaels. Notice that everyone came to get Eliah. Everyone gathered. There was unity. There was something exciting that even drew people out of Moab and Edom. And things were just, there's still something in Judah. Thank the Lord, there's something still in Judah. And Yes, Gedaliah says we're going to serve the king of Ammon or the Babylon, but, but that's God's instrument and we can function that way. Um, and then here comes this man, self-interested man, and Gedaliah says, I don't believe it. I, I, I can't believe that of him. How many times has this church been rocked by the sin of someone we can't believe it of? I can't believe it of him. How could he do this? And I have said the same thing. And because you should be believing, because the Bible says that this is what's going to happen. This is our greatest, gravest danger, is from those within who seek their own interests and not the interests of God, not the interests of the church, not each other's interests as God calls us to, but their own interests only, their own appetites, their own desires. And they are willing to destroy the flock to satisfy their own interests. This is the number one danger facing the church, and it has been facing the church for decades, and we have put our heads in the sand and said, no, it can't be, and anyone that says that this group is off and that group is off is just being divisive. We all love Jesus. I'm pretty sure every Judaizer claimed to love Jesus, and Paul condemned them. We need to have right doctrine so we know the truth that we might take a stand in Jesus' name and recognize that that truth born out of the scriptures alone, accepted by faith alone, is what we must stand for. Any who come in and seek to disrupt that or not accept that or seek their own interests, that we would identify them and remove them. Gedaliah did what the church has done, tolerated the traitor among them. When I was growing up, here's what the churches abandoned. They abandoned church discipline. I don't remember in all the churches, and I grew up in church. I mean, my parents had me in church. I don't know, I was probably three days old or so. I don't know, I don't know what I was. But from little guy, I was in a Christian home in church, I never, all the way growing up, never saw church discipline done in a biblical fashion. Never. I was at seminary preparing to be a pastor. Had never seen church discipline done. Why? We had abandoned it. Because we couldn't believe it of our own and, and you know, we should just do it quietly, we shouldn't offend anybody, and uh, it, it might split the church up, and instead our churches were being split up. I saw lots of church splits. This man carrying off a group, youth pastor carrying off group. I saw lots of church splits, but I didn't see church discipline, where the church said, this is wrong, and we will not tolerate it in our midst. They were like Gedaliah. And the result, and that's what happened in our, a lot of our schools. How did we lose seminaries and Bible colleges? Because they tolerated one professor. And pretty soon there were a handful of professors who denied the scriptures, denied our Lord that bought us. And then the whole school became perverted. That's how entire denominations have become liberal. 
Because like Gedaliah, no, that can't be. Not Ishmael. Won't believe the warning. God has given us warning after warning after warning in the New Testament against false teachers. Pay attention. That's the number one place. So when you turn your radio on, listen to a preacher uh, who has no accountability to you or anyone else, turn on your TV, turn on the internet, recognize you are inviting the greatest danger point for the church. Influence in your mind and in your heart. Am I saying it's wrong to ever turn on? No, I'm just saying you, letting you know they're not all evil. Um, but I want you to understand the danger that's out there of unaccountable, um, inconsistent teaching. Why is the local church so necessary? Because you can evaluate not only what the man says, but how he lives. You can look at his life, at his family, at his business dealings, at his work ethic, and and they need to be all consistent. I don't know any of that of any radio preacher that I've listened to. I don't know anything about any of those parts of their life. And they, when you go to the requirements of pastors, what do you first see? Mighty man of faith preaching the gospel? No. What's required? Husband of one wife? Keeping his household in order? Not a lover of money? Has respect within the community? I mean, those are life issues. And that's why our focus needs to be not on where I get my material from all the media outlets available. Why do I need a local pastor? Because I don't know how you can evaluate anyone else without knowing their whole life. According to the requirement of Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 3. And the accountability that is there, I have to answer you. You can jump right out of your seat and come up here and get in my face and say, that's not right. And I have to deal with you. Try that with a radio preacher. Television, internet. Can't. So we have a third enemy. That's the second enemy. It's the most dangerous. I spent a lot of time on it because we need to recognize it. There's a third enemy here. And that third enemy, of course, is Ammon. The Ammonites just keep being the enemy. They've been the enemy. They've been the enemy before Israel took the land. Under Moses, they were an enemy. And so the Ammonites still here. The city of Ammon still here. Um, and, but they are um, that sneaky little enemy on the outside that just kind of annoys you, right? The sneaky little one. And so, but here they are. They're not going to attack you. They're not going to attack Babylon. They're not going to be any of that. They're behind the scenes, but they're going to prop up their own candidate here. They're going to. They'll help Ishmael as long as Ishmael takes all the risk. And they're behind the scenes. But they are the long-term, perpetual enemy of Israel here. And we have a long-term, perpetual enemy. And it is worldliness that the church needs to confront. Always out there, right on the border. Right on the border, always there, right there, is worldliness. Always there. And again, come to the New Testament, what does it tell you? We are to look for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. But what are we supposed to do while we're looking? This is denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. Being sober and righteous. We need to recognize that that's always there. That lure is, that, that, that neighbor is always right there. And so we need to be a, alert to its snares and its traps and its schemes. And we cannot run to it and seek to uh, entertain it at all. And when we see individuals within our number entertain secret deals with worldliness and ungodliness and, and those lusts, we need to recognize this isn't beneficial to the church at all. It'll only bring destruction and death. And so our hero, Johanan, who warned Gedaliah, 
gathers up the army remaining and he chases down the, the, the poorest of the land being carried off by Ishmael to Ammon. He's taking them to the Ammonites to set up a sub-kingdom of his own under the protection of the Ammonites. And whatever you want to say, ultimately, those false teachers, because their God is their stomach, any they take with them are going to go right into the realm of worldliness. That is where they're going to go. They will never go towards godliness and righteousness in the kingdom of heaven. They will always go that direction. And so here comes Johanan, and he comes on the scene, and, and just the sight of him, here's this champion with all of the military leftovers of Judah coming upon Ishmael and his ten guys. Remember, this is Ishmael and ten guys. This isn't an army we're dealing with. So there's a cooperativeness by the poorest of Judah. as well, I guess if Gedaliah is dead, we've got to follow this guy. Well, here's Johanan say, no, we won't stand for it. And he chases him down. And as soon as the people say, no, there is a champion. There is a champion for Israel. They're still, they're still faithful in Judah. And they turn and they say, we're not following you. We're going with him. And Ishmael doesn't have the resources to stop them. He's only got 10 guys. Him and eight of them are going to escape. So there's not really an engagement of battle. There's two guys down and... Him and eight guys run off to, to the Ammonites, empty-handed. Oh, that false teachers will be driven out of the church empty-handed instead of with their own following. And here comes Johanan, and he calls them, and he delivers them, and he brings them all back. Is he going to fail? Yes, he's going to fail, but at this point, he champions by warning of the of the danger. The danger isn't from Babylon. The danger, Gedaliah, is within your own midst. And he's in cahoots with that constant danger we've always had in Israel, and that's with the Ammonites. And then to go and chase them down. You've been, you're following the wrong man. And sometimes you need to chase down some good brothers they're good brothers. They love the Lord, but they're following the wrong man. And sometimes we need to chase them down and say, hey, that's not the truth. Get out of there. You say, Pastor, that sounds like sheep stealing. No, it is. It's sheep recovery. You're not stealing sheep from someone else's flock. You're recovering God's sheep from a false shepherd. So yes, I'm more than happy to go in and do sheep recovery programs when I see someone teaching people lies. And some of you have come out of such circumstances. And so we see these three enemies and three very different manner of dealings, right? This one enemy, persecution. God raised that up for his purposes. Don't fight it. Don't. Rebel against it, accept it, serve them, serve them. But the enemy within, oh, don't tolerate that at all. That rebellion, that falsehood, that self-interest, oh, don't tolerate that. Destroy that. Deal with it. You have lots of directives of de dealing with it out of the New Testament. And that constant enemy out there, avoid it. Avoid that constant enemy. He's always on the border. Godliness, godlessness, worldliness, lusts of this flesh, they're always right there. Avoid them. So one you serve, one enemy you serve, persecution. The open, blatant enemy that's banging at the door, we serve them. We pray for them. We do good to them. We seek to give them the gospel. The one enemy we want to destroy and expel the enemy within. It claims the name of Jesus, but serves only themselves. And the one enemy we avoid. Because they're always right there on the fringe. And we know that they're the enemy, but they're so close, so near. And it's easy to get entangled with them.
May God give us wisdom to deal with our enemies in a manner that glorifies him. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your truth and for this account of how these, the poorest of the land, navigated in their day. And Lord, they made mistakes, and we have too. But they were also striving to do right as well, and there were champions among them. And Lord, we pray that we might be counted of the kind that want to serve those who persecute us, who will not tolerate those false among us, and will avoid the worldliness that encompasses us. Lord, help us to champion your truth and follow after you. By your spirit and to your glory and until your coming. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.